What's up, everybody? Welcome to Bomb City Locker Room Talk Podcast. As always, I'm James. I'm Adrian. We haven't really uh, interviewed one another regarding the careers that we currently hold. Tonight is going to be a special interview, a one-on-one interview between Adrian and I. And I have a series of questions pertaining to her expertise, her field of work, which is working in the prison system. I've been doing this now. This is this is my eighth year working for um, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. I love I love what I do, especially what I do right now. Um, I mean, I'm I'm currently right now. My position is a training sergeant, and so I'm actually in charge of our training academy. And so I I actually get to teach new correctional officers how to do their job and and I love it absolutely but even before I did that I really did love my job it's something that that I've cared about I love working for this agency I love being able to to protect the citizens of this of this great state of Texas I love being a public servant and um I want to change it for the world um a lot of people uh, being being a correction officer is one of the most un- unappreciated positions even though a lot of people don't appreciate what we do or understand I, I don't think it's necessarily that they don't appreciate what we do I just think they don't understand what we do and that's why it goes so unappreciated and hopefully with this podcast that we're doing tonight hopefully it changes a lot of people's minds right I mean, we really haven't interviewed each other. And you're going to be the first interview of the year because uh, this is something that we want to continue to do throughout 2022, uh, one-on-one interviews. And I know you have a lot to say regarding your career and, and what you do on a daily basis with the prison system. With that being said, what really inspired you to become a correctional officer? Is there anything in your life that kind of drove you to choose this career path? I don't think anyone ever just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I want to be a correction officer. There's people that wake up, uh, you know, or or not even wake up, but as kids, you know, they say, oh, I want to be a firefighter or, oh, I want to be a police officer or I want to be a doctor or, or I want to be an astronaut or whatever. Nobody says I want to be a correction officer. So there has to be like some underlying and- inspiration there yeah what kind of pushed you that direction right what actually got me into the business was at the time again um right before i was working for the prison i was actually a 911 dispatcher for um the amarillo emergency communication center or aecc and it really wasn't working out there i was going through a lot of personal stuff at the time i was working there like my dad was going through cancer he had stage four leukemia at the time, and there was just a lot of personal stuff in my life that was going on, and I loved I loved that job, but it just wasn't working out because I unfortunately I let too many personal things get in the way of my work, and so I had my one of my exes at the time that I was living with. She had a friend that just so happened to be working at the prison, and he was like why don't you come work with me? Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was like, the prison, you know? And at the time, I had never really thought about it. Matter of fact, I didn't, 
even though I was like in my mid twenties at the time, I I didn't even know that Amarillo even had a prison, right? Or more than one prison. Mm-hmm. I it it never crossed my mind. Um, so he was like, "Why don't you come work with me?" And he told me about all the benefits, and he told me about the schedule, and I was like, "Man, that sounds actually really nice." And so I went ahead and I was like, I might as well just go ahead and try it out. And, of course, one of our mutual friends had worked there as well. But he was actually trying to get me to not work there. I was like, you know what? Just because it didn't work out for me, for you doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to work out for me. I'm going to give it a try and we'll see what happens. And eight years later, here I am still working for that agency <laughs> and I'm actually in, in a really good position right now. Um so and and I'm in a super uh supervisor role, so obviously everything's been working out great. So So did you have any uh family members that had had any experience working in the the legal system, the the prison system at all? No, not at all. So you're the first and, person well, within your family to really venture out into this well, type of work. My brother um who lives in Kentucky right now, He he's a Kentucky State Trooper. So he's really the only one besides myself that's ever worked in any kind of law enforcement. Did you pick his brain at all about what, what to expect? No, and here's the thing is I've I've talked to my brother before several times about our careers, and he's always told me I could never do what you do. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that's crazy because, you know, he's he's been in the shit. Like, again, he he works for KSP, and so, like, he's he was at, like, the Breonna Taylor riots, and he's... Oh, so he's, he, he's seen a lot of yeah, he's, situations and incidents firsthand absolutely. in his line of work. But but he tells me, he's like, he's like I, can't, I can't do what you do. He's like, I could never work in a prison. I'd be too scared. And I'm like... What? You but know, are like, you scared after eight years? No. Because it's like natural to me. Walking through those gates is like natural to me. But I can also kind of understand because here's the difference between like, say, regular police officers and then correctional officers. You know, and, and again, I, and, I, and I bring this from my, my dispatching experience as well. Police officers really only deal with criminals... 10% of the time. Correctional officers, though, deal with criminals 100% of the time. We're around them 24 hours a day, and a lot of times we are managing them by ourselves. Um, like, for instance, just here on the Clements Unit, which is a maximum security facility, um, if you're working just in a general population cell block, you're usually by yourself managing 144 inmates on your own by yourself violent offenders um murderers rapists sex offenders um you know and again police officers only have to deal with the public they deal with the public all the time but as far as like actually dealing with they're not in an institution criminals who are locked away yeah 24 7 now how many of these inmates are there for life? Is there a huge percentage here in Amarillo that, that are incarcerated for 
the rest of their lives that have life sentences. So within within the TDCJ system, you have many different types of facilities. You have state jails, which only house inmates with fourth degree felonies, which they don't stay any longer than two years. Okay, so petty crimes, mm-hmm. basically. Then you have medium security prisons, state prisons, um, which a good majority of those are going to house most of your like sex offenders, um, nonviolent offenders. And then you have maximum, ma- maximum security prisons like the Clements Unit, which they call 2250s. Um, they house a lot of inmates that do have life sentences, and some of them have life sentences without the possibility of parole. Um, so you have a lot more violent, a lot more aggressive inmates, a lot more inmates that are that are convicted of more violent crimes in those prisons. And do you have experience um, navigating through each type of prison as far as like the uh, the severity of, of how long they're there and how serious their uh, crimes are? Here's here's what I always tell like my my recruits is if you can work on a maximum security prison, you can work anywhere. Mm-hmm. Because working on a maximum security facility, you deal with all types of different offenders. So, like, in my case, I've dealt with... I, I actually... When I, when I finished with my own personal academy, I actually started in, in on the Clements Unit in 12 Building, which is actually the psychiatric department. So I dealt with a lot of inmates that had a uh, that were diagnosed with a lot of mental health issues, such as schizophrenia, bipolar d- a disorder, things of that nature. So I de- I've dealt with psychiatric offenders. I've also dealt with some of the segregation offenders, which are like a lot of your gang members, like Mexican Mafia, Aaron Brotherhood, Texas Syndicate, etc. And then, of course, I've dealt with just regular general population inmates. So I've I've kind of gotten a taste of everything, pretty much, when it comes to the prison system. And I've I've been through it all, and I've seen it all. So I know you've so. told me that you've dealt with some pretty infamous offenders. Yeah, here in the state of Texas, at least. Mm-hmm. Can you speak on any of those? Um, probably the most famous inmate I've ever dealt with um, was Charles Arb- Albright. He's Nicknamed the Texas Eyeball Killer. He was actually pretty, I guess, prominent in the 90s. He was convicted of killing four sex workers in the Dallas Oak Cliff area. And he was known for taking their eye, cutting their eyeballs out and keeping them as souvenirs. And so, and at the time of, of his conviction, he was like in his late 50s. So whenever I met him, he was probably like in his late 70s. They would classify him as a, the prototypical serial killer, right? Right. Multiple victims, mutilation, that mm-hmm. type of thing. But he was considered a nonviolent what in he was considered a nonviolent inmate. Was he a model inmate? Because once he- when when I first started in the system and met him, he was considered a trustee. Mhm. He was a, because t- 
TDCJ and I'm sure all other prison systems in the United States classify their they they all classify their inmates based on their behavior in prison, not necessarily what they were convicted of, but their behavior while in prison. So makes sense. I mean, Charles Albright, you know, was a model inmate while in prison, so he was what we call a G two uh, custody level which is almost like a trustee, and, of course, he was geriatric at the time. So, Once you gain that type of <clears throat> classification, can you lose it by your behavior? Absolutely, yeah. And I, I've seen inmates before be trustees, and then they get caught, like, with a cell phone or maybe with some type of drug or something like that, like methamphetamine or marijuana, and then they lose that custody staff. They lose those privileges that they had before. And um, they they can lose all that freedom that they had before and then, you know, be segregated, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. Everything that they get in prison is pretty much a privilege. So Gotcha. With Albrecht, he was one of the uh, most famous, notorious inmates that you had come across. Yes. How was the interaction between you two? He was actually pretty chill. I never really got those serial killer vibes from him. Um, he was pretty quiet when I actually first started with the prison. Again, he was he was a lot older. And so he was actually housed in our infirmary, which is normally housed. They, they normally house elderly inmates who may be on like a hospice type setting. And so he was that's where he was housed at the time was in our in our hospice in our infirmary and he was always really nice to me he always had good manners called me ma'am said yes ma'am no ma'am do you find that a lot of those inmates of that caliber or high profile individuals are very manipulative while they're in jail are they do they still carry those traits into jail or do they kind of just shed all of that once they become incarcerated and they become a different person well, here's the thing is I've I've come across a lot of inmates that have, when I met them, they were very chill, but I've heard stories about those particular inmates from other veterancy uh, correctional officers that have more time in the system, system than me who dealt with those inmates, and they were like, oh, well, this guy used to do this back in the day, you know? Um, but they never did those things whenever I worked there. And a lot of that has to do with testosterone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't don't understand this is that men, especially when they're younger, like say between the ages of 18 and 30, have a high level, level of testosterone in their system. And testosterone is actually um, one of the things that they blame aggression on. And so when it comes to inmates who are in prison, typically you're ones that are, you know, in prison for long-term sentences. When they're in their younger ages, between the ages of 20 to, say, we'll say like 35, when they have that higher level of testosterone, they typically tend to be more aggressive and more violent. But then once they start getting past that age, past the age of 35 or past the age of 40, their testosterone levels 
start to dip significantly, and so then they start to chill out more. Start to calm down. Exactly. So, become more rehabilitated mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Exactly. Like, there, for example, there's an inmate uh, by the name of, his name is White. And he's actually, his nickname in prison, which most inmates in prison, they typically go by nicknames. His nickname is Kool-Aid. <laughs> what dude's, a nickname. Dude's, dude's been locked up since like the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And when I first started, a lot of my coworkers used to tell me stories about him. Like, oh man, yeah. They they would say like, oh man, white, Kool-Aid. Man, Kool-Aid used to get down. I'm like, what do you mean he used to get down? Like... This dude he literally used to cut his chest open, right, and just, like, rip it open and, like, squirt blood on people, you know? Like, that's how crazy this dude Damn. was. But now that he's, like, in his mid-60s, the dude's, like, super chill. Oh, that you know? tes- testosterone is gone. Yeah, that testosterone is that gone. That pent-up aggression is, is out right. of there. And now he's just chill. I mean, don't get me wrong. He can still go off every once in a while. But for the most part, he's he's super, super relaxed. Right. You know? And a lot of it is because he's getting older. I mean, the dude's got a life sentence. He's never going to get out. Have you ever He's, come across any of these high-profile um, inmates or inmates in general who are in prison for a long-term sentence or even life for that matter, and they talk about their case and they give inf- more information as the years go by, and most of the time they end up confessing to what they did to try absolutely. to lessen their sentence. Do you run into that at all? And if you do hear that, what do you do? What's the protocol? I've run into a couple of high-profile inmates. Like, I've even run into high-profile inmates that are from here, from Amarillo. I think one of the most, other than Charles Albright, I would say the next most high-profile inmate I've ever dealt with um, was a guy named Jason. Jason Burkett. Okay. Okay. No, No, he's not local. So... If y'all ever look up, which most people nowadays, they ha- everybody pretty much nowadays has a Netflix account. If you get on Netflix, search a documentary called Into the Abyss. All right. Um, it's a documentary that is directed by a German director named Werner Herzog. Which, if anybody's a Mandalorian fan, Werner Herzog actually plays the Collector, who's the one who um, is actually p- trying to pay the Mandalorian to get Baby Yoda for him. <laughs> so he's actually <laughs> so Werner Herzog is um, the director of this documentary, and Werner Herzog is um, he's pretty outspoken uh, about his views against pa- uh, capital punishment. He's completely against it. Um, so, of course, most of his prison documentaries are actually based in Texas, which is one of the biggest capital punishment states in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the most active execution chamber in the United States, not just the United States, but in the world. And plus, we have the most prisons. We have the most prisoners by numbers. So it is what it is. But so Jason Burkett is uh his case is actually highlighted in this documentary called into the abyss and the reason why it's highlighted is because um so him and his partner or his friend at the time um whose name was michael perry 
they both broke into somebody's house. They attempted to steal a car, and they ended up killing the homeowner, uh, which is, was like this um, woman in her early 50s, a nurse. And then they ended up killing two more people after that, and then pretty much throwing their bodies in a lake. And Michael Perry ended up getting the death penalty and was executed like in 2011 or something like that. And then Jason Burkett did not get the death penalty. He just got a life sentence with the possibility of parole. So the documentary is pretty much just kind of basically stating that the fact that Jason Burkett did not get a death penalty as well was kind of like unfair and unjust mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So, um, and Jason Burkett was at the All Red Unit, which is outside of Wichita Falls, and he actually came to Amarillo because he had a, a medical appointment at Northwest Texas Hospital for a colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually was the one who was assigned to take him to that. And it's crazy because I had seen the documentary before this happened. So when I seen Jason Burkett, I was like, man, this dude looks familiar. Like, I've seen him somewhere. I was like, he's not from Amarillo, but I, I've seen this guy somewhere. Right. And then I looked at what we call a travel card. Travel card is basically like an identification card for every inmate. And, and uh, when we take them off unit, we have to have it with us. So I was looking at his travel card, and I was like, Jason Burkett. I was like, this name sounds familiar. I've heard this name somewhere, but I can't picture where. And then finally it hit me. I was like, this dude's on fucking Netflix. And I fucking <laughs> went up to him. And I was like, hey. I was like, you're on fucking Netflix, aren't you? And he looked at me, and he was like, Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I seen, I seen that documentary. I was like, as I said, it's called Into the Abyss, isn't it? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, there's a couple of other documentaries that we did um, on uh, investigation discovery. Did he divulge like, any really? information from those documentaries? Did he, he didn't. He was just like, yeah, I've, I've been on a couple of other documentaries on investigation discovery. I mean, I didn't really get into details with them. I wasn't really trying to have like an in-depth conversation right. with the guy because i mean <laughs> that's kind of unprofessional if if i did um but his case is definitely one of those like high profile cases in in the state uh just because of how con- controversial the sentencing and stuff like that was so um so that's definitely one um so the prison in Texas that um, deals with the most high-profile individuals that, that, that gain notoriety or fame through what they did, their crimes, do they go to Huntsville? Is that the main facility where they go? Well, it, it depends on the person, and it also depends on the crime. So, um, so like, for example, anybody, going to, in, anybody sentenced to death is going to go to the Polonsky unit which is in Livingston, which is just south of Huntsville. Um, and that's that's Texas's Supermax facility. So anybody sentenced to death is going to be housed there. Gotcha. Um, it's supposed to be an unscapable unit. Um, it's pretty much all SEG. Um, Could you see yourself working in a unit like that? 
I don't think it would be anything different than what I've already been doing. Right. Um, so, I mean, I've heard Polinsky is definitely hard to work, work at, but so is Clements. Um, and so I don't, I don't think, and to me, an inmate is an inmate. It doesn't matter what their sentence is, um, what their conviction is. They all wear white. Right. So, I mean, to me, I don't think it would be anything different. So, you know, if I ever did work the Polinsky unit, I don't see why I would have any issues, honestly. Right. You've been through it all. I mean, the the prison system here is, is pretty intense. I know I've heard a lot of stories. I've heard of inmates escaping and things like that. Is that an issue that still occurs in modern times? Um, well, the last escape that happened in this area was back in 2014. We had, uh, when the new nail unit was still up and running, uh, there was a guy that, uh, named Marvin Garcia that escaped from the nail unit and he made it all the way up to the Canadian river. Oh yeah. I'd heard about that. Yeah. So, um, they really don't happen very often. Same thing as like riots and hostage situations. They really don't happen very often. It's very rare for them to happen. Um, they can happen at any moment, um, but they don't happen very often. Right. Um, it's very, very, very rare. Now, as a correctional officer, and you've, you've done this for so long, have you kind of gotten into the historical uh, realm of, of your career and researched other maximum facility prisons and, and um, really been into you know, documentaries or reading about prisons like Alcatraz, things like that. Like, do you get into that stuff now that you're in the career? Does that stuff interest you? Absolutely. And I love the history of TDCJ. I love the history of Texas in general. And TDCJ has a very rich, very rich history. And I love talking to it. I especially love talking to it about uh, to to my um, new recruits, to my cadets in my academy, because prison the way the way prison is ran nowadays versus say even like the seventies is extremely different, and um, it's very to me it's very interesting. Now, do I dwell into like other prisons like like you mentioned Attica? Right? Alcatraz or and or or Alcatraz. I haven't really researched those other prisons. Um, you know, I've read about other prisons, say say like Rikers Island and uh, Attica. Yeah, that's where Tupac was locked up. Attica, <laughs> <laughs> um, Alcatraz. I mean, of course, you've you've heard everybody knows about Alcatraz because they had that famous escape and right we still don't know whether or not those escapees are alive or not i think they escaped it's yeah. up for debate but yeah i mean like i are they still alive though right you know that's I, I think one that of those they did a lot i think they you did know, survive that but who knows who knows yeah um and i've also i've i've read a lot about the new mexico uh penitentiary mainly mainly when it comes to the New, New Mexico penitentiary is, is that riot that happened back in the 80s. That was one of the most brutal prison riots in United States history. So I typically read on that. Um, but yeah, TDCJ has a very rich history. Um, we've been around for a long time, since 1848, pre-Civil War era. Um, 
The Huntsville Penitentiary, which is also known as the Walls Unit, has been around since 1848. That's how we started. Um, I know you've I, been in the prison system for so long. Like I, I, I want to. I've always wanted to ask you this. Um, what are some of the moral life lessons that you've learned or you've taken away from your career and being around inmates and being in that type of environment? Um, honestly, one of the biggest things that I've learned while working there is learning number one, how to communicate with people. Um, because prior to me working there, I was not a very good communicator and working this job will give you like the best people skills ever. Right, because you have to communicate <laughs> yeah. with all different types of people that Absolutely. are some have mental illness, some are just, you know, mm-hmm. trying to rehabilitate themselves. I can only imagine the type of skills you have to acquire yeah. to do that job. Absolutely, and another thing is, you know, a lot of people have like this notion or predetermined thought that all anybody in prison is just like this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Some of these guys that I have dealt with in prison are more respectful than some people that I deal with going to fucking Walmart to buy fucking groceries. You know? Um, Do you think that's a result of just being in prison and and having to abide by certain guidelines and, and restrictions and just having to change the way of life? Or do you think it really can change a person? I think it just really can change a person. Absolutely, 100%. Um, Because like I said, um, which which don't get me wrong, when, when, when you work in a prison, you have to earn, you have to earn respect. It has to be earned. That's, that's one of the things that a lot of people don't, recognize out here in the free world is people just automatically want respect but in prison it's not like that you earn it mm-hmm. whether, it's the same with where, the correctional where, officers and the inmates yeah whether you're an inmate or a co like you have to earn each other's respect out here people demand respect depending on what type of title they hold or Maybe uh, where they live, where they live or what have you, how much you money know, they have. <laughs> yeah. What kind of money they make, etc. But when you're in prison, you have to earn that shit. And that's one thing that I that I have taken stride in coming out here is like, if you want me to respect you, you got to you got to earn my respect. Even out here in the free world, like you want me to respect you, you're going to have to earn it the transition from dealing and communicating with inmates and and being in the prison system and then dealing with civilians out in the free world. Is there an adjustment you have to make between the two? So, and and this is one thing that I've always told my um, new recruits is when you are a correctional officer, you have to be two different people. And, and that's, that's me. I'm two different people. So when I'm on the, on the prison or in the prison, I'm Sergeant Soto. 
But when I'm out here in the free world, I'm I'm just Adrian. You have to be two different people and you have to be able to separate work and your personal life. Because here's some statistics that a lot of people may not know. Correctional officers have the highest divorce rate than any other profession in the United States. Why? It's because they don't know how to shut off being a correctional officer. So they'll come home after work and treat their wife or their husband or their kids like they're inmates. Right. And people are not going to put up with that. Um, so that they have a very high divorce rate. They also have a very high uh, sus- substance abuse rate as well. Um, alcoholism and things of that nature. Um, you have to be able to... As me personally, whenever I walk out of those gates, out of that prison, I leave. I leave everything there. All all the stresses, all the all the drama, all the problems. I leave all of that there. I don't take it home with me. And same thing, anything that I have, any any problems that I have at home, I don't take it to work with me. You have to be able to separate your work and your personal life, especially being a correctional officer. Is there a high turnover rate with the the cadets that you train who get into the uh, initial training and they figure out that they may not be able to progress through the rest of the training based on the experience that they've experienced because it's just not for them? The turnover rate has always been high. Uh, Statistically, most new recruits typically don't last the first three months. What would you say the main character trait that someone should have if they're wanting to go into that profession? What, what is something that you inherently need to need to possess to be successful? You've got to have, you got to have communication skills. You got to, you got to have people skills. You've got to have empathy. Yes. A lot of people go into this job and think, oh, it's an inmate. They're a piece of shit. Uh, I don't have to do nothing for them. Right. But they're people. They're human beings just like me and you. And they have we needs. All, we all have mistakes. Yep. They, they have needs just like we have needs. And it's, it's, not, just, it's, it's not just about how do I want to say that? How do I want to word this? It's not just about us. Right. Okay, we've we've got to I'm not going to say necessarily take care of them cuz I mean it's not it's not a fucking daycare. <laughs> but um we've got to make sure that they're safe and that they're taken care of. You just got to basically do your job. Exactly. Cuz bad things can happen between inmates and inmates. We we've, we've got fights, we've got assaults. Uh, you have sexual assaults, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature, and we've gotta we've gotta protect these guys from from instances like that from each other. Exactly, and um, that's that's what we get paid to do. A lot of correctional officers don't see that, and a lot of it is because they they come into this job, and the only thing that they know is what they've seen in TV shows and movies, unfortunately, and in TV shows and movies. 
when you see a correctional officer, it's always in a negative light. Either they're bringing shit in, or they're sleeping with the inmates, or they're beating the crap out of inmates, Mm -hmm. uh, or what have you. They typically don't get a good view of corrections until they actually get there. Right. I imagine no one from the outside would ever know what you go through unless they walk a day in your footsteps through that prison and and go through the procedures that you have to conduct on a daily basis. I couldn't imagine, you know, having to leave that at work and go home and not think about it because it's such it's such an emotional thing when you deal with people on a daily basis that have so many problems and that that have so many needs that need to be met and you're just one person and you're trying to do your the best you can to protect them and serve them but mm-hmm. I can only imagine how how difficult that may be. Do you find that a lot of correctional officers have issues with mental health working in this line of work? I think so. <laughs> I think I think um just like with paramedics and police officers or even maybe firefighters that correctional officers definitely deal with some type of post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder because um, there are a number of times where correctional officers will come across an inmate severely self-mutilating or hanging themselves maybe even seeing their own co-workers getting severely assaulted by an inmate just like like I said we're no we're no different than any other first responder And that's what kind of upsets me the most is that people don't give us the same respect as police officers. They don't give us the same respect as paramedics or firefighters. Because I'll tell you one thing, that as a correction officer, we're all of those professions rolled up into one. Mm -hmm. We have to be police officers. Sometimes we have to be firefighters because guess what? Some of these inmates set shit on fire they set their mattresses on fire they set their clothes on fire and we've got to be the ones that put put that out and then sometimes we have to be paramedics because we we have inmates that will hoard their pills and take a bunch of pills at the same time and then overdose or they'll try to hang themselves and you guys are there before any other first responders get there so you have to maintain the situation stabilize things before they arrive absolutely so we're all of those first responder professions all rolled up in, into one and we probably get paid the least and we're respect we're we're not respected a lot of times and um unfortunately that's just the way things are you know and just like police officers police officers have a bad rap right now because of a few bad apples it's the same thing with correctional officers. Just those few bad apples give us a bad name. Our respect starts to dwindle down, you know. So, you know, Derek Chauvin gave a lot of police officers a bad name. Right. As soon as as soon as he put his his knee on George Floyd's neck, he gave a pretty much every police officer in the United States a bad name. A stain on the uh, entire law enforcement across the nation. Absolutely. Is there anything that the state does for you all correctional officers to help your mental health or give you any extra support in that manner? Absolutely. So we actually have a couple of different options. So the first option we have is called CRISP, which is the uh, Correctional Response Intervention Support Program or Crisis Intervention Support Program. 
And then we also have the Employee Assistance Program, which is also known as EAP. So EAP, if uh, which is basically like a toll-free 1-800 number. If you call that number, um, you can speak to pretty much like a professional counselor. And they'll, you know, walk you through any kind of problems that you're having. Um, the only thing, the only difference between that and CRISP is CRISP is actually a team that is made up of other correction officers. You know, and sometimes whenever people want to vent, like me personally, if I want to vent about work, I typically vent to other correction officers. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to vent to you or anybody that's never been in a prison and is a lot of the times is because I know that y'all might not understand. Can't relate. Exactly. I want to talk to somebody that's been in my shoes and that's the difference between Chris and EAP. So those are the options as of right now that are available if you're struggling um, with anything that has to do with work. Now I've, I've always wondered, I've seen these videos online of inmates having cell phones and recording things. <laughs> is this real or is this like staged? Absolutely. Unfortunately, uh, the reason why a lot of correction officers get a bad rap is because, unfortunately, um, a lot of correction officers fall under ma- manipulation of these inmates and they get suckered into bringing, bringing in cell phones and K2 and methamphetamines and things of that nature. So, yes, inmates... do will get possession of cell phones typically by way of a correctional officer. And they will create Facebook accounts. They'll create Instagram accounts. Right now, TikTok is very popular. And inmates will create TikTok videos. I've seen them before. And they even have cash up accounts. Wow. Like, they'll they'll have their people out in the free world set up a cash up account for them. That way... You know, whenever they need to make whatever kind of transactions, they can just do it right then and there with Cash App. So, what's yeah. the punishment for inmates having that type of contraband in their cell? So, a, having a cell phone is a felony um, in the state of Texas, and it's pretty much a felony in any other state as well. As far as the severity as of, of punishment, it really depends on the inmate and their disciplinary history. Some of them may, depending if if they're really, if they have a a long history of having um, contraband, they'll probably get time added to their sentence. If they don't have a history, they're going to for sure get at least six months of commissary restriction, which for any inmate, that's going to suck. Six months of not being able to purchase anything from commissary is going to be rough. (laughs) <laughs> so, no soups, <laughs> no spreads, no, no stamps, county jail spreads. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it really all just kind of depends on the circumstances. We actually, we actually have a new prosecutor in Potter County, and I'm not sure what his name is, but he's specifically assigned to TDCJ because Potter County, unfortunately, has the most cases of contraband in the state unfortunately what percentage would you say is from correctional officers mm, i would probably say at least 80 percent if wow. not if not more 
I assume that would be an automatic termination based on if the yeah, evidence if, if we, presents that they actually yeah, provided sure. them with the contraband. Automatic termination and then, of course, prosecution if, if the state decides to to forego prosecution. Now, are they more lenient on that because of the fact that it's so difficult to find correctional officers? It's really, it's like lenient. As far as the punishment and things like that. On correctional officers, if they're caught bringing in uh-huh. stuff. So obviously, prosecuting people costs money. And I've always noticed that not every person that I know who has gotten, you know, say separated from the agency has gotten prosecuted because they haven't. Um, I know some people, like my ex, <laughs> who, uh, who, who were never prosecuted. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it was because, you know, they resigned before they could really get any full-blown evidence. So it really just kind of depends. I've seen some, and I've seen some other people actually get prosecuted, and I've seen some people get actual jail or prison time for either bringing in contraband or even sexually abusing an inmate. So it really just kind of depends on the person and the circumstances, really. Sometimes it can take a couple of years to prosecute them. So that's just one of those things. I'm sure it happens often. It seems like it does. Especially relationships with the the correctional officers and inmates. I'm sure that's an ongoing issue as well, right? I mean, that's always been there. Absolutely. And it'll always be a problem. And it's and it's a lot of it is because people don't know how to avoid falling trap under manipulation. They don't know how to and I maintain their people. professionalism. Exactly. I teach people like, hey, and, and some of these people may not even, um, some of these people are recruited, you know, by security threat groups like Mexican Mafia. Texas. So they come into, like, say, my academy already knowing that hey i'm here for one reason and one reason only and that's to bring shit in Mm -hmm. can you really sense who those individuals are sometimes yeah sometimes like like i'll get a cadet that's got like all these tattoos they're all tatted up and um they're kind of how do i word this withdrawn and not Ratchet, <laughs> they they hood as fuck. And, and it, I would like, imagine some of them might be like withdrawn and not really into it, but they feel like they're pressured by whatever gang affiliation that they're with, what they're doing, and going through the academy to become a certified correctional officer, right? Yeah, you never know. Some a lot of because a lot of the people that we that we fire for, you know, establishing relationships with, with with inmates, a lot of them are people that we least expect. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it really can be anybody. You know, you just never know. What are the big um, gang affiliations that you deal with on a daily basis that you have to be aware of? And, of course, you have to know, you know, what certain tattoos represent and symbolize and things like that. So, the top three gangs in the state of Texas are going to be um, Mexican Mafia, Texas Syndicate, and Aryan Brotherhood. And are those three really prevalent within the Texas Panhandle? Yes. They're they're prevalent throughout the entire state. Okay. 100%. So, Mexican Mafia, which anybody's ever heard of, like, 
uh, or watch the movie Blood In, Blood Out, or American Me. They know about Mexican Mafia. Uh, They've been around since the early 70s. Uh, Started off in the California prison system, and they branched off to Texas. Texas Syndicate, one one difference between Texas Syndicate and Mexican Mafia, because they're pretty much rivals, is Texas Syndicate has more ties to Mexico. So most of their members are mostly immigrants. Um, Like, you have to have some kind of ties to Mexico in order to be a part of Texas Syndicate. And then Aryan Brotherhood, again, is pretty much just a bunch of white guys that got tired of being raped by black dudes. So (laughs) they joined together and called themselves neo-Nazis. Are they actually racist? No, because they're allies with Mexican Mafia. So money talks. Is Um, there a lot of problems between those gang affiliations in prison? Sometimes they can they can be at war with one another with with one another. Absolutely. You know, at one point at one point uh there was a war between a Mexican Mafia and Texas Syndicate, for example. Uh, at one point there was a war between Aryan Brotherhood and Aryan Circle, which Aryan Circle is basically just it was just a bunch of Aryan Brotherhood members that didn't quite agree with the way they were running things. Like Aryan, some of the a lot of the Aryan Circle members didn't like the fact that Aryan Brotherhood was doing business with Mexican Mafia, so they branched off into their own Aryan neo-Nazi uh, group. Mm-hmm. So, do you have to be pretty um, educated as far as? Um the tattoos and things like that, when you go through the academy to become a correctional officer, do they put you through a rigorous training to know what represents what? Yeah, we go we go over gang signs and tattoos and things of that nature so that um, they can be ready to ever deal with those types of gangs or anything like that, uh, depending on where they work. So... Like, for instance, like, Mexican Mafia, one of the biggest tattoos is uh, the number 13. Mm-hmm. Because M is the 13th letter in the alphabet. <laughs> Mind blown, right? Mind blown, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so yeah, we we go over some stuff. Um, we definitely go over gang signs and tattoos and things like that. Like, you have uh, the Pistoleros. Obviously, all of their tattoos are of pistols. Wow! You know, the, like they don't make it. They don't make it off. You know, you know what I'm saying. They don't make it like hard. <laughs> Do you, you know, ever face any real threats from any of those individuals who are in those gang affiliated um, organizations? No. And it's mainly because I I treat every inmate the same, regardless of custody level status you know i treat everybody the same i give them what they're supposed to have i what they're supposed to get nothing more nothing less i've never really had any inmates try i mean you've had some try to manipulate me but not in that fashion to where you're like hey bring me a cell phone or hey 
right. bring you this or that. I've never had any inmates try to do that to me. I would imagine if you show respect, they're going to show respect. Is that true? Absolutely. Because like I said, respect is earned in that place. And in eight years, I definitely have earned my respect. And I take pride in that. Is that um, something that you try to get across to the cadets as well when you're educating them on on um, everything that that goes into being a correctional officer? For sure. Because a lot of times you have, like, these young kids that come in and they just think that, oh, I'm going to beat every inmate up or whatever. Like, no. Like, that's not how it works. You got to earn some respect, gain a rapport, earn inmates' trust. Like, that's what you need to do. But you got these young 18, 19-year-old 2003 kids <laughs> that, um, yeah, you know, think that they need to be Billy badasses and beat up inmates to earn respect. And that's not, that's far from it. Because in reality, they're all human beings. They all require the same needs that we have. And they're, they're all humans. They made mistakes, which is the reason why they're in prison. But we shouldn't judge them regardless of what they did. You got to treat them all equally, right? Firm, fair, consistent, and equal. Yes, absolutely. And if you don't want to, please go work somewhere else. Amazon's hiring. So. <laughs> to conclude the interview, I, I need to ask you this. Is there any other line of work you, you could see yourself doing besides being a correctional officer? Or is this your calling? I mean, I would have loved to have been a peace officer. You know, work for APD or... Well, you're pretty satisfied and, and content I'm, with what you do I'm now. satisfied as what, uh, with what I'm doing. I love, I love training. I love teaching. I love giving new people a sense of hope because they typically don't get it when they first start on the unit. And so I love being, being able to be like the resource... Uh, because whenever I first started, I didn't have that. And I want to be somebody, I want to be an officer that they can look up to because I didn't have that whenever I first started. So I, I love my job. I love what I do. And, and hopefully I can do that for a really long time. Are there any other positions that you would want to obtain throughout your career in the future? I've always wanted to try to go back to school to get my degree and maybe potentially um, work in parole. But parole makes less money than correctional officers, which doesn't require a degree. Wow, really? Which is weird, right? That's that's yeah. peculiar. I <laughs> never would have thought weird. that would be a reality. It's, and that's how TDCJ is. Like, if you have a degree and you work in a position that doesn't require security, you make less money than security. It's crazy. That is crazy. Wow. Yeah. This was a great interview, and I'm glad that I was able to sit down with you. I think that our audience really doesn't know us to the extent that they should, and I think we're going to do more of these interviews, one-on-one -on -one interviews, to really provide everybody and the listeners with um, the real information behind who we are and what we're about. Thank you all for listening. This has been Episode 74. Stay tuned next week for Episode 75. Peace. Yeah, yeah.